I don't really know how to start shows. Come on now, don't start, don't start liking me now. So yeah, I'm funny compared to you know. Well, you'll see later. I stand for mayhem. I know a lot of fucking idiots who think a lot of shit is mean spirited just because it goes against what they believe. But the relief of comedy is it takes things that aren't funny and it allows us to laugh about them for an hour. We got a purple suit to buy and a gigantic coffin. Why are you laughing? Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Why You Laughing, a history of comedy podcast. And today, I am pleased to introduce to you the incomparable Steve Martin, uh, one of the all-time greats, honestly. And he's a strange guy, and we'll we'll play a couple of clips that actually um, describe what his legacy is pretty well. But I think we'll also reference his book a lot, which is one of the best comedy books, if not the best ever written, Born Standing Up. And um, in that book, he refers to his act as basically a parody of an entertainer, which I think is actually the right way to describe what he did, because a lot of people misinterpret what Steve Martin is uh, because of some of the people that imitated him years later. And uh, I always think of uh, the line in The Office when um, Dunder Mifflin, the, the, the Scranton branch is getting shut down. And uh, Michael Scott says to, uh, I think, Pam, did I ever tell you about the day Steve Martin died? <laughs> just Steve Martin's still alive, Michael. <laughs> and he goes, I always thought the day Steve Martin died would be the worst day of my life. <laughs> but I was wrong. It's this. <laughs> but the idea, like people like, you know, Michael Scott in real life uh, would like Steve Martin, but not really get what he was doing. And then kind of imitate that without understanding it. So, you know, over the years, people started to misinterpret Steve Martin as kind of a hack. And I think being involved in a lot of the kids' movies that he did and things like that probably didn't help. But uh, he's definitely, he's the second straight guy we've done, him and Bill Hicks, that I didn't know a ton about their careers before doing the episode. And then afterwards, I walked away liking them a lot more and being a lot more interested in them. Uh, So we will get into that today. But first, I do want to remind you guys, blindmike.net is where you find everything. If you're a uh, Why You Laughing fan, if you want to check out the Blind Mike Project, um, hopefully the WATS links will be up there soon. Uh, You can find all the free links up there, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and whatnot. Um, And you can also check out the Patreon if you want bonus episodes a couple of uh, at least two bonus episodes every month, plus mini episodes that we'll be doing for why you laughing. You can also get these episodes a week early on the Patreon. Um, so get subscribed and uh, go there. If, uh, if you'd be so kind. Be kind. Um, was there one other thing I wanted to mention? I don't know. I can't remember, but yeah, the, um, his book born standing up is, uh, like I said, considered one of the best comedy books of all time. And it's an interesting insight because A, you learn kind of how smart and insightful Steve Martin is for comedy. But the takeaway that I took from it was for a guy to be that fam- as famous as Steve Martin got to be and write a book that is so self-aware. There's a lot of self-awareness in that book, I feel like. Um, so that was my big takeaway to reach kind of the heights that he, he did, but still be in touch with uh, how he came up and the struggles of a comedian and, uh, relating to kind of his early days. Uh, and he's also a guy, we talked about Robin Williams. He's in the discussion. I would say, honestly, top two or three 
I mean, if you want to extend it to top five, but he's definitely up there of the most successful comedians of all time. Um, but you know, he quit comedy over 40 years ago. He quit stand up, I should say, over 40 years ago. So a lot of people forget that. So uh, we will get into it. Um, he was born in Texas, quickly moved to California, and then um, started working at uh, Disneyland at a young age. And this is something that we found like, remember, we talked about. Rodney Dangerfield being a singing waiter. Yeah. And Carson was a magician. <laughs> like we talked about all these older guys had to find multiple things because being a stand up comic wasn't quite a career yet in the 50s and 60s. Um, so he talks a little bit about uh, that. I think he's on Stern here in our first clip. Uh, this first one's about him getting on stage. Yeah, let's hear that. So you're working at Disney, and this is kind of a Steve Martin legend. You know, you're working at Disney World and Disneyland, Disneyland yeah. and uh, you know you would you got exposed to entertainers and and things. And you think about it, a guy with your background, a kid, suddenly says, "I've got the bug. I want to be an entertainer." But there's no one in your family to emulate. You, well. I didn't know what it meant to be an entertainer. I knew early that I loved comedy. I mean, I never, I've never phrased it like I'm phrasing now. I just loved comedy. You never I, said, I want to be a comedian. No, I didn't even know what that was. Right. Wanting to be a comedian came later when I figured out, I just wanted to be on stage and that was a way to be on stage. Right. Was to be, I didn't have, I didn't sing or dance or act or do anything. That's all I had was a magic act. Right. And I would go see this uh, comedian named Wally Bogue at the Golden Horseshoe Review. It was a free show and it was fantastic. And I, what did Wally do? He did balloon animals. There you go. And he, he was just funny. It was like corny jokes and he was, I, I saw his show hundreds of times and he was always fresh he, he did the same show you know like I that old know, show business thing week. if you do the same show, you never know who's in the audience just go out and give them your best show and the guy was brilliant he, he was so funny so genuinely funny and would you did you get to know the guy at all uh i did a just a little bit but you know my fantasy was i'm sitting there in the audience watching him i would be 12 or 13 or 14 and my fantasy was that he would get sick. And <laughs> so they would call some, you. Somebody would say, does anybody know this show in the audience? <laughs> and you know it. I would be ready to go. <laughs> and, and so it's interesting. That's funny, by the way. But it's just interesting that, you know, back then it was kind of you just wanted to get on stage and you would do whatever you could. And that's why Steve Martin learned the banjo and he learned he was a juggler. Like he's just he had all these literally balls in the air, just trying to become a performer because you don't even really know, like, can I be a stand-up comedian and make money? Like that didn't really happen at that time. And, you know, interestingly enough, Steve Martin is a guy who paved the way. Like now, you know, the top 30 acts in America are touring in arenas around the country. Probably even more than that. If you really started counting, mm. um, but being like an arena act, is still obviously a crazy achievement, but it's not a rare thing in America now because stand-up is a, a much more respected art form and is, has more than just like a cult following. Um, but when Steve Martin was doing it, that was literally unheard of. He's the first guy that ever uh, got to that level. So, you know, he just wanted to be a performer. And another thing that's interesting about that, we'll get into his father a little later, um, because he was a 
interesting guy, but uh, his father wanted to be an entertainer. He wanted to be an actor or a performer in some way. And in his book, um, Steve wrote, it's, it's very funny. And this is another thing I had um, uh, when I was listening to his book. Um, Seinfeld is always attributed as the guy. I'm sure we've mentioned it on here a bunch where, you know, everyone always says uh, comedians have some sort of demon or some sort of vice, you know, like either they're uh, an alcoholic or a drug addict or, you know, some sort of darkness that kind of fuels their humor. And Seinfeld is always pointed to as the one example of like, I don't really know what his, his thing is, his vice or his darkness. And even with Seinfeld, I would say maybe like he's kind of a prick. (laughs) Maybe, maybe it's as simple as that. But then I was thinking like Steve Martin's a guy that I can't think of any controversies or anything with him. Like, I think the, you know, the worst tabloids written about him were the, like he got divorced in the nineties, you know, that or in recent memory, just handcuffing your career to Martin short. What do you mean? I don't know. I haven't, I, every time they, they're just inseparable now. And I'm just like, come on, just go back to being yourself. I think. No, I don't know. I'm a, I like Martin Short. Too, I do too. Anyway. I do too. But um, I didn't think. I didn't think. My point is, let's not Martin. derail me here. My point is that um, Steve Martin. I can't really think of any like controversies or anything with him. Um, and in his book, he writes about how his father, and this is very common uh, back in the day, but like you know, him and his sister and his mother never knew what kind of mood his dad was going to come home in. And they told this one story about um, Steve, his father asked him something and Steve kind of mumbled the answer and his father said, what? And then he pulls out his belt and just starts beating the shit out of him. And he said, it's the only time he abused me. But after that, my um, relationship with my father was very formal and he goes to this whole thing and he goes, anyways, I tell all of you that to uh, inform you um, that my credentials uh, to be a comedian are there. So it was almost like he wanted to prove himself. Like I do have darkness in me. It's there. Yeah. That's very but, funny. Um, but yeah, his, his, his father is definitely an interesting guy and their relationship is kind of a, I guess a touching part of the book at the end, which we'll get into more. Um, but let's, let's keep going for now. Uh, this is his first time on the tonight show. Yeah. So he worked for, um, he continued with the magic and kind of, you know, um, crafted that into a comedic act. And in fact, his first time um, on television was the Smothers Brothers. He wrote for the Smothers Brothers, which, by the way, we have to we're going to have to do a Smothers Brothers episode because the more we keep doing these episodes, a lot of people came up uh, via the Smothers Brothers. Mm. And even uh, Steve Martin talked about his writing partner on this show was Bob Einstein. Who we talked about a couple weeks ago, Marty Funkhauser. Um, and Rob Reiner, I think, also worked on that show at the time. Um, but his first TV appearance was a magic act. And that was also his first Tonight Show appearance, too. And obviously it was comedic, but it was almost like almost like he used it as a, a, a crutch to be like, hey, I'm doing magic. And then, you know, kind of out of the, the side of your eye, you're like, oh, this guy's funny, too. You know, mm. uh, but this is his first set. On Carson, which I think depicts a little more of uh, what I was talking about when I said a parody of an entertainer. You know, seeing all these people, there must be 500 people in here and there's millions of people watching at home. 
I really began to realize we have a population problem. So I gave it some thought, and I came up with a fantastic solution to the population explosion. It's so simple. Death penalty for parking violations. <laughs> I have a lot of good ideas, actually. Uh, I take mugging. That's a problem, right? Getting robbed on the streets. Well, I realized that muggers don't like to rob you if they think you're crazy. So let's say you have $10 and you want to walk down the street with it. First, you wet your pants. <laughs> then you wear a tie and set it on fire. But if you don't want to get that involved, a much simpler thing, the moment you are aware you are being robbed, throw up on your money. So that we, you know, we always talk about influences on this show. And it's amazing when you, when you say like people sound like this guy and kind of adopt their voice. If I just sent you the audio of that and told you it was David Letterman, <laughs> would you not believe me? Right. <laughs> like, that sounds a lot, like, creepily like Letterman. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, obviously, you know, Letterman took a lot from... Like, Steve Martin would walk out, like, in that set, he walks out and says, uh, I'll, I'm Steve Martin and I'll be out here in a minute. And it's like, we like, little weird shit like that where he was at the forefront and it was him, Andy Kaufman was coming up at that time, um, you know, he gives a lot of credit to like Steve Allen and Jack Benny and guys like that. So it has been around before, but what Steve says is like, and it's interesting. And I think you can kind of make comparisons to where we are now in comedy a little bit. Um, but at that time when he was coming up and it's also not long after, you know, both Kennedys and Martin Luther King were assassinated. Um, but at the time, like he's doing the night show there, uh, the country's at war with Vietnam, uh, the Manson shit is going on. And then like later in the decade, you have Watergate, all this, all these like big politically fueled stories uh, that people were, you know, taking on to the stage. And even if you took someone as like goofy as fucking rich little, he would be doing Nixon material, you know? Mm -hmm. So like everyone was political at that time. And so Steve Martin said, I'm going to do the exact opposite and be completely silly. And that's where you get, you know, the arrow through the head and all that stuff. Um, and then we'll play later. Seinfeld has a very good description of it, but it's like Steve Martin's act was very easy to, look at and think, oh, he's an idiot because you don't realize he understands fully what he's doing. And then the people that imitated him over and over the years, like the, the one influence I thought of too, uh, that gives a good example of what I'm talking about was, uh, do you remember the, the song parody man, Todd Pettengale that we talked about? Mm -hmm. Like that's Todd Pettengale is probably a guy that fits the Michael Scott description that I was giving where I would bet you he was a huge Steve Martin fan, but he doesn't have the intelligence or the nuance to implement the skills that Steve Martin had. He just saw, Oh, let me do song parodies or something like that. You know? Mm. So it took someone like a letterman who was also, you know, a great comedic mind to say like, I kind of like what these guys like Andy Kaufman and, and uh, Steve Martin are doing. I'm going to put my own twist on that. 
But if you listen to Steve talk about like um, he would take, he took like philosophy courses in college and he took a lot from that. It seemed like, because the way he talks about approaching comedy in such a different form, you really do get the sense that he's a genuine uh, genius, honestly, like he is a uh, comedic genius. And he also, and I was fascinated by this part just cause I had seen the movie a couple months ago for the first time. Um, did you ever see the movie Trumbo starring Brian Cranston? No, I have not. Very good. No one really, no one really saw it, but uh, it was about Dalton Trumbo who was a blacklisted writer um, in the fifties and sixties. And he would write, screenplays under uh, you know a bunch of different aliases and the most famous one probably being Spartacus and Steve Martin dated his daughter and he would go over to the house and had they would have these like intellectual um, discussions and you know um, Dalton Trumbo would be ripping Hollywood and he would have these paintings insulting the people that have run him out of the business and things like that. And so that's kind of where Steve Martin learned to have more, uh, I guess, insightful or intelligent discussions. At least that's how he describes. It. We got uh, him talking about headlining. Yeah. So this was interesting. Cause like I said, he wrote for, um, uh, uh, the Smothers Brothers, uh, Sonny and Cher, um, and he started doing like the Tonight Show and things. But um, he was going on the road and open. He opened for bands and um, singers as well as other comedians. And this is him talking about kind of taking that next step up. There's a very brave decision in there, leaving the world of television where you're successful. Because certainly, writing for Sonny and Cher, writing for Smothers Brothers, walking away from it. And saying, now I'm going to go be a performer. That's a big, and, and then your income gets completely shot, yeah, right? Yeah, wiped, wiped out. Wiped but you out. know what I had? Residuals. Oh. I had residuals from writing, which were diminishing. Right. You know, because it always uh, diminishes. And that kept me going for a while. And I remember one time I called David Brenner, who was very successful. Amazing. And I said, David, uh, you know, I, I get paid $300 for a show and it cost me 250 to get there. He says, what do you do? This was, this was the best advice I ever got that changed my career. Right. He said, what I do is uh, I, I take the door and let the club take the bar. Right. And I have a friend stand there with a clicker as if people come in. <laughs> come in. And I had decided at, at that time to be an opening act no longer. I was an right. opening act. I said, people do not attend or perceive the opening act. They're there for the headliner. So I decided to only to headline. So I went to uh, a little club uh, called um, uh, Bubba's, I think it was called right. in uh, Coconut Grove. Yeah. And I, this was be the first time I was going to only headline. And you know, ballsy like, move, right? Because yeah. who the hell knew you? No yeah, one. And I, so my income just really, really dropped. But uh, that changed my life because when I started headlining, people started paying attention a little bit. Where more. do you think you get the guts to do that? Honestly, I mean, because it I don't is. I think it takes guts. It's inevitable. I don't think it's guts. It's, you just had to do it. You had to do it. Yeah. And when you uh, I, I, I think he's wrong about that. I do think it is gutsy, especially because another thing I found interesting that he wrote about was. Um, the Tonight Show, we've talked a bunch about how, you know, you could go on the Tonight Show and it would make your career. And for some of guys, I do think that was true. And the example I always go back to was Freddie Prinze. Um, but 
luckily for Freddie Prince, someone at NBC saw him and said, oh, well, I want to pair this guy with someone else. He can be the young Hispanic kid, uh, you know, to the old white curmudgeon, whatever Chico and the man was. I never watched it, but I assume that's the gist of it. Um, so, you know, in instances like that, it does really help your career if the right person gives you an opportunity. But the way Steve Martin described it was totally different where he said that, you know, you go on once and nothing happens. You go on six times and someone will come up to you and say, Hey, don't, didn't I see you at a part? Do I, did I meet you somewhere? You go on 10 or 12 times and they're like, Hey, I, ah, geez, I, where do I know you? You were on something, right? And so it wasn't this instant overnight success that the tonight show gave him. Um, and same with, you know, like writing for the Smothers brothers, he won an Emmy, but it wouldn't, no one knew who the hell he was. And so Steve wanted to be a performer and wanted to be out there. And he looked at it and said, you know, the one way I do that is just by doing it. (laughs) Now I will say the luxury that Steve has that other people don't now is like, you know, if you're, let's say you're at a gig here in Boston and, uh, you know, you're kind of an up and coming comedian and you don't sell out. The club owner just says, well, I don't, I'm not going to book anymore. Fuck you. <laughs> Whereas back in the day, it was the club owner's obligation to sell tickets. Right. You know, so it was more on them to get people into the building where that for some reason stopped existing. Probably because the amount of comics. That's true. Yeah. And the amount of locations I would think too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. What's next? Uh, comedy philosophy. Oh yeah. So this is a little, what I was uh, talking about before. And I think he has a very interesting thing. I shit on Seinfeld for about 45 minutes for his comedy philosophy, uh, because I thought it was very pretentious where Steve Martin probably had even more success than Seinfeld. And I don't, I find his philosophy to be much more, um, relatable and grounded. I think more successful in comedy. I just want to, um, hard to say. I don't know. Like, I mean, I love Seinfeld so much more than I love anything Steve Martin did. Um, but I, I, Steve Martin probably made a shit ton more money. Put it that way. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I'd, actually, I don't know that. I don't think so. Yeah. I think I might be wrong. I'm, I'm definitely wrong about that. Seinfeld's almost a billionaire. Yeah. He's just shy. I think 50 million. He'll get there soon. Yeah. So, and Seinfeld chose to stay. And that's the other thing is Seinfeld could do arenas if he wanted to. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but anyways, let's hear uh, Stevie's philosophy. And there's some point where you're using sort of other people's material, you know, comedians. That was heard, early on. Right. And then yeah. you kind of come to the conclusion, I got to do my own thing, but I don't want punchline jokes. I don't understand that. What do you mean you I'll, didn't want punchline jokes? I'll explain it. Okay. You know, there was... I'm in college and I'm studying philosophy and I'm examining everything. That's the premise of studying philosophy in college is to examine everything that's going on. And I started to really examine comedy. And I noticed there's two kinds of laughter. One is when you're watching a comedian and he says a joke and then you laugh at it because you heard the punchline and sometimes it's really funny and you're laughing and other times it's okay but you still laugh because you're laughing on the rhythm right and i thought but there's another kind of laughter too when you're home with your friends and you're laughing so hard and you're crying you can't stop laughing and when you think about it you don't know why you're laughing right you're just laughing and i thought what if i could go for that go for 
trying to actually be funny where people are really laughing and you say, what are you laughing at? They go, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that like, again, I don't know if you want to use the word ballsy or whatever, but that is like a, a very smart approach to it. And I think the best example of what he's talking about with like the timed laughter is obviously sitcoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause if you go to the blind Mike project, Patreon, blindmike.net, check it out. Um, a while back, we watched an episode of uh, the sitcom two broke girls and just played a game. We wanted to see when we could find a sentence of actual dialogue that wasn't set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline. Like actual human words. Yes, the way humans would talk, where it's not, I'm setting you up for a joke and you're going to slam me. (laughs) But the way they did it was like tricking the audience into thinking, my God, this is a laugh a minute. This is hysterical. And, you know, there's a million compilations of every sitcom uh, with the laugh track removed. Um, where it's like, oh, I don't even, they are, they're duping me here into thinking something hilarious is happening. <laughs> and Steve Martin noticed that even with live crowds. And it's interesting because like, that's true of even guys I really like where I'll see them, um, you know, in a theater or in a comedy club and then, you know, watch them on Netflix, a different set, and be like, I, just, I found this shit so much more funny when you were in the environment. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's just, it's just, you know, part of the energy of being there versus sitting on your couch alone. Um, but Steve Martin looked at it and said, I'm going to do the opposite. <laughs> I'm not going to do any of that. And he would start doing really weird shit. Like, when he was in comedy clubs, he would essentially say like, all right, guys, follow me. And he would walk out of the club and out onto the street. <laughs> and, you know, a couple hundred people would follow him and he would do whatever show. Like, I think uh, one story he told was he'd go back to his hotel room and he had everyone jump in the pool. <laughs> and he was, and that's again, very Letterman. Like I could, as I was listening to his book, I could feel Letterman doing that type of shit back in the eighties. Um, and that's when he said, like, I, I found something here. Like I'm doing something different and weird because the audience was responding to it. Um, so taking those chances is that's what separates him from the guys who imitated him later, you know, where Steve Martin was coming up with things and, and taking these chances. Whereas, uh, you know, people in years after that were essentially just imitating him. Thanks for doing all the work, bud. Yeah, yeah, he paved the way <laughs> to make it uh, a lot easier for a lot of hacks later on. So you're telling me that does work? Interesting. <laughs> um, next is him talking about Elvis. Yeah, I just threw this in because I thought it was a interesting story, and it does give you a little bit of the scope of how famous Steve Martin was. And by the way, we have other. We, it's not just Stern. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> he came back uh, first. You know, he was a gigantic person. And the first, uh, I was just standing in my dressing room. I was opening for Anne Margaret, actually. And uh, Priscilla came around the corner, who, who is, or especially was, strikingly beautiful. And, you know, I was like, saw her like this. She was all dressed in white. And then Elvis, who was uh, gigantic, came around. I think he was 6'4 or, or, or something and had a huge a gold belt buckle on. He was all dressed in black. And he started to go in Anne Margaret's dressing room. And then he turned and he caught my eye and he came in and he said, Son, you have an oblique sense of humor. Just like that. <laughs> we 
ended up, my manager was, uh, you know, a real fan, knew the whole history of Elvis, so we started talking to him. We talked to him for a long time, maybe 25 minutes, and uh, one of his, you know, he had a lot of aides around him, mm-hmm. and one of his men came over and said, Elvis, uh, we have to go now, and Elvis went, it's okay. And we talked for another 10 minutes. <laughs> he said, uh, I heard a different interview where he said that that guy's job was essentially to pretend Elvis had somewhere to go. <laughs> so like when they were in public, like if El- if you saw Elvis in a conversation, he would come up and be like, uh, Hey, we got to get out of here. And Elvis would either go, ah, sorry, man, I got to go. Or don't worry about it. I'm interested in this conversation. It's kind of amazing. Cause if you always, you always hear like these Elvis stories, like he couldn't be bothered or he would be somewhere for four seconds and then he's off already. The fact that they yeah. had him for like 40 minutes is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. sure. I mean, yeah, that speaks to how interesting Steve Martin is, but also maybe he wasn't zooted up that day who knows great point (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's the speed with which steve martin rose is pretty crazy and i you know we've talked about guys who have probably skyrocketed quicker than steve martin but like i said to get to the level that he did without any help from like of course, he started to get help from SNL, but they said that SNL's viewership jumped by a million people when he would host. So it's like, you know, chicken or the egg, who's helping who there? Mm. And, you know, his first movie, The Jerk, came out while he was still doing stand-up, technically, but I, he was already playing arenas. That So, like, Steve Martin really and truly got to that level, you know, by just carving out this weird niche for himself. And then that niche kind of grew and grew to people who wanted to see bizarre acts like that. Yeah. And uh, the jerk is a bunch of people. So like that would be in a bunch of top fives all time. You know, oddly enough, it was just trending the, the other, as, as if they knew we were going to do this episode, just <laughs> like three days ago, for some reason, the jerk was trending and I clicked on it. Cause I knew we were doing this episode. And I think it was as simple as someone tweeted out like, um, what do you know Steve Martin from? And most people said the jerk. Oh, no kidding. Now, like I would, our generation sadly probably knows him for like cheaper by the dozen. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, probably the first time I saw him, but me too. And I saw, I saw that movie being the, uh, uh, the product of, uh, a dad who had to find something to do with his children when he had them on the weekends. <laughs> I saw that movie in theaters. So yeah, parents watch that one when they, when they have like a couple kids just to feel better about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know what? It's, it's a similarity that Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy and Robin Williams all have. And I think there's a reason for it. I think it's a, a culmination of a few things. Um, and you know what? You could throw Sandler in there. Jim Carrey, I think as well. Yep. All these guys that come from stand up but get super, super huge. Um, I think they hit a point where, like, A, a lot of money is thrown at you to do kids' movies. Like, those make a shit ton of money. So they figure, hey, parents are going to want to bring their kids to a movie that Steve Martin is in. Um, so that, that's the money is certainly one aspect of it. But, like, these guys also get to a certain age where, like, um, Steve Martin would talk about the, the amount of work that went into standup. And he's like, at some point, you know, someone made him realize that like, Hey, if you start doing movies, you're going to them rather than having to go to each of their towns to entertain them. Yeah. He actually you has know? a great quote about that in one of the clips. I forget which one, but 
That's what that him saying that though is when I went, Oh, so you, I don't think you actually loved comedy. Well, that's the interesting thing about Steve Martin. I, I meant to say that at the beginning, actually, um, when we were introducing him, because <laughs> I, I genuinely think he wrote one of the best books about stand up. If any of you, any of you young whippersnappers out there, which I'm sure we have a lot of based on the way I talk, um, <laughs> but any of you kids that want to get into comedy, um, I would definitely say read that book because I think it gives you a good perspective in like how comedians start and the mindset that they should have. Um, yet I don't think he's a guy that wanted to be a stand-up. No. And I think that's a true of a lot of guys who, you know, got famous in stand-up in the, you know, you had Lenny Bruce who just wanted his opinion out there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, he tr- truly was like, you know, uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? An advocate of free speech and what he believed in and was willing to, you know, get arrested for it. Um, but that was all underground niche shit. Lenny Bruce was never going to be playing arenas. He'd never be allowed in them. Right. Um, same with George Carlin. George Carlin got arrested for shit he was staying on, uh, staying on stage early on. Um, Steve Martin was a guy who wanted to entertain and he wanted to be light and silly. I don't know that he wanted to be a stand-up. Now you have a group of guys who are both very successful, but also came up wanting to be stand-ups. I don't know if that's the case for Rob. Like we talked about Robin Williams. He went to Juilliard. He wanted to be a stand-up. He wanted to be an actor, you know? So I think that's the case with a lot of these guys back in like the seventies. The thing with Robin Williams though, is after he became famous actor, he still did stand-up. He did. And you know, I mean, you do have Steve Martin now going back on stage with Martin short and it's a thing maybe he's more comfortable with than doing a, a solo act, but obviously he does have that bug a little bit or he wouldn't have done that. But yeah, you're right in the sense that I don't think he like loved, loved stand up the way you hear a guy like to compare him to Seinfeld again. Yeah. Um, you know, Seinfeld has a billion dollars and will still come and play, you know, yeah. the Wang Theater in Boston. Same with um, Chappelle and yeah. um, take him or leave him, like however you feel about Joe well, Chappelle Rogan. Chappelle for sure. I mean, Chappelle is Lenny Bruce, but also just has a lot of money, you know? Yeah, I know, but I'm I saying... Think like, he would be doing it in basements if he had to. Right, but like, that's what I'm saying. Like, uh, he's one of those guys that no matter how much money is in his bank account, he's still going to do it. Steve yeah. Martin jumped ship as soon as he could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, next we have, uh, Seinfeld talking about him. Yeah. So like I said, uh, Seinfeld's talking about his book here and I think gives a good summary of why Steve Martin is successful. But all, all good comedy, I think is intellectual, you know, even, um, uh, somebody like, um, Steve Martin, who's written this fantastic, I think the best book ever written about comedy that's coming out, I think in a couple of months called the comics life. Yeah. And which, Steve Martin, which is his memoir, is it? It's his memoir right. of his life as a comedian. Pause one now, second. Just so there's no confusion, that ended up being like the subtitle. It's called uh, Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life. Just so you know, there's not two different books. Yeah, he got an advanced copy he's talking about. Yeah. There's he's a guy. Pretty, he's inside that Seinfeld. He knows a couple people. Is it? It's his memoir right. of his life as a comedian. Now, there's a guy I think a lot of people would think, well, he was just silly. You know, he was silly. No, he was incredibly intellectual. And... When you put intellectualism with an arrow through the head, that makes you laugh. Just an arrow through the head does not make you laugh. And that's what I'm talking about, where it's he's an intellectual guy. 
And he's not just putting an arrow on his head and being like, isn't this funny? He has a reason for doing it. Whereas, you know, guys after that, that would use a rubber chicken, <laughs> didn't, know, <laughs> didn't know what the fuck they were doing. They're just like, oh, Steve Martin did shit like this. Right. Um, you know, another guy, too, that I think is kind of a, a mix of those two people that we've talked about before is uh, Bob Saget. Where like Bob Saget was a musical act, and I do like I think maybe he used that as a crutch early on, um, you know, as a, almost a defense mechanism, um, like kind of hiding behind the guitar a little bit, but also like I think he was finding his voice, you know what I mean? And then I, I think eventually Bob Saget did become a funny comedian. And the one I always think of um, is Bo Burnham. Well, Bo Burnham is obviously one of my um, favorite comedians that there is. Um, I always say it's not stand up; It's a different thing that he does, but he's still kind of in that category. And one interview that he did that always stood out to me is uh, Bo Burnham was on, he was promoting the movie that he made eighth grade um, about, like a seventh grade girl or eighth grade girl, obviously seven. I'm an idiot. <laughs> and the movie's called eighth grade. It's about a seventh grader. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he was uh, out promoting that. And he did an interview with the bonfire on Sirius XM and big J Okerson was there. Uh, he's the host of the program. And uh, he's a, you know, an absolutely filthy comedian, obviously. And at the end of the interview, Bo Burnham says, uh, he goes, Jay, by the way, I wanted to thank you again. Like I know I've said this to you before, but it's always meant a lot to me. Um, when I was coming up, you out of all people were always, you would go out of your way to be nice to me. You'd come up and talk to me and you were very supportive. And like, I've always I remembered that. And I just wanted to thank you for that again. And I thought that was such an interesting thing for two reasons. A it's hilarious that uh, Kevin Hart and Bo Burnham thank Jay for their success <laughs> while he's on the radio with Dan Soder, <laughs> two of the, the biggest acts in America. <laughs> but but the reason it stood out to me is because a lot of people would look at Bo Burnham and write him off as just some hack that uses a keyboard on stage. Yeah, particularly because he got successful when he was so young. You know, he's seventeen years old. Um, I remember he was like seventeen, eighteen years old playing uh, the Mullen Center at UMass in front of a couple thousand people. I remember when he was just big on YouTube. Yeah. And had millions of views. So people get resentful of that and they're like, oh, he's a, you know, he's a musical hack that has a guitar and a piano. Meanwhile, I think he's like one of the great geniuses of this generation in comedy. Um, so it would have been easy to write Steve Martin off as that as well back in the 70s if you didn't realize what he was doing which is why I think a lot of people look at Steve Martin now. And like I said, you know, things like cheaper by the dozen don't necessarily help, but it makes it easier to look at Steve Martin and be like, Oh, he's wearing an arrow through his head rather than understanding why he was doing all that. Um, we have him talking about SNL. Uh, yeah. So like I said, that was, um, uh, you know, He's a weird guy. Him and Alec Baldwin would be two guys that are, were essentially cast members to the point where they have characters. <laughs> like, like if you're talking about some of the great characters that SNL made up, you would think of uh, Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin characters. Right. So that's how often they were on that fucking show. Um, but let's hear him talk about it a little. You have the record for the number of guest hosting of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, it's not a big 
big prize for well, it. It's a big, well, yeah. it's, I mean, you know, it's a yeah. But I've been I've been there since the beginning. You know, <laughs> people right. haven't. Yeah, how did that happen? Um, I was just starting to break as Saturday Night Live was starting to break, and so uh, I think George Carlin hosted the first show. I didn't. It wasn't until the second year, really. Yeah. And um, Lauren was a friend or not? Nope, didn't know no, him. Didn't know him. No, no, he became a very close friend. Yeah. And uh, uh, in fact, I'll mention his name, Lauren Michaels. Lauren. That's how close we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And it was a strictly an agent agent, but I had enough stuff going on that I was. Yeah. You know, the young comedian who could host the show. Uh, and it, like, you know, obviously in hindsight, it is a, a perfect fit. But he also talked about how he looked at it. He saw what Saturday Night Live was doing, you know, like in the first season with Chevy Chase there. And was thinking like, oh, shit, I'm not as original as I thought I was. Because he saw people doing, you know, similar things to him. And in reality, what was what was happening was a genre was being created uh, that came to be known as alt comedy, essentially. And what's sad is like now we think of alt comedy as just being like, I don't know, a hipster, whiny liberal, I guess. <laughs> for whatever reason, it's come to mean that. <laughs> but what alt comedy was for a long time was people like Steve Martin who weren't necessarily going on stage and doing set up punchline. They were doing different weird things. Like I think David Letterman would have been considered um, alt comedy. Yeah. It, it used to be like uh, like carrot top or something. Just like some weird little thing. But like you said, well, now you, know, you know who would be an alt comedian? And I guess is probably considered that still. But like the two guys I thought of that are definitely influenced by Steve Martin today would be guys like uh, Rory Scovel. You know who that is? Yep. And uh, Todd Glass were the two that I thought of. Oh, that's not. That's a good one. Who were very funny. And the the specific reason I thought of Todd Glass was, uh, did you ever watch his Netflix special? Um, wh- which one was that? I don't figure out what it's so called. So him and Rory Scovel are friends, obviously. And uh, in Todd, Rory Scovel got a Netflix special first. And then Todd Glass got one. And in the bit he mentions, obviously this was shot in a way where I'm, you know, it was edited after I'm sure I'm assuming he told the crowd to do this. Otherwise it was a brilliant stroke of luck, but um, he's telling the story and he says, my friend Rory Scovel and the crowd starts chanting, fuck Rory Scovel, <laughs> fuck Rory Scovel, fuck Rory Scovel. And the way it's shot is so bright. Cause you see Todd looking so innocent and going guys, no, that's my friend. Stop it, please. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny and weird and out of nowhere. And it's like shit like that is like modern day. That's what Steve Martin would be doing uh, if he was coming up now. You know what I mean? Like with the yeah. ability to edit and do that sort of shit. We just need, we just need Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy to go on a tour together. I mean, that's the, the great debate is like, would they still have it? I think Steve Martin on some level would, cause he's always done. He's even though he's quit stand up. He's still been Steve Martin, you know. He uh, he's hosted award shows and all this. He had a great line. Um, it was, I think, uh, it was the Kennedy Center Honors it was uh, uh, honoring Lorne Michaels, mm-hmm. and they had Steve Martin host it. And he goes, uh, he goes, you know, this is a, a great thrill for me. 
because when I was a young boy, I used to always dress up and play honoring Lorne Michaels at the Kennedy Center. (laughs) 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 So so like, you know, he's still been Steve Martin throughout his career. And SNL is another example where it's like he's still doing that Steve Martin type of shit. Um, Eddie Murphy's different because it's like, would he be able to have that energy that he had on stage? But we've we've debated that a bunch before. It's like it's. I think it would be hard to just turn that on after so many years of not doing I, it. I think, know? I think he could do it. I think he would do it. Well, we'll to find well, out someday. Uh, yes. Yes, we certainly will. <laughs> uh, what's next? Uh, we got him talk. This is the sad part. Quitting stand up. Well, yeah, that, oh, that's why, that's why I was kind of waiting. Cause I knew he would talk a little bit about why he left. And then I wanted to get into, um, if he were to come back, but this is him kind of explaining um, why he stopped doing live shows. When did you do your last stand-up? It would have been 1981. This is three years after the tape we saw. Yes, and uh, I was I was working in, I think, a, a, somewhere in Atlantic City or somewhere a, a different kind of venue, sort of uh, one of those you know supper club type situations, and, and I just. I hadn't taken any bookings. I'd just finished The Jerk. And I hadn't, and it had come out and it had been a hit. And I didn't know, I didn't really didn't know if I was still a stand up comedian or not. But the fact that I wasn't taking any bookings was telling me I was probably. You weren't enjoying it anymore? It didn't become routine. It became routine. And I I guess, you know, you don't enjoy it anyway. (laughs) Because, you know, you're, because you're, it's hard. It's hard, and you're on. You're, you're thinking about it all the time. You're working. It's a. It's a real. It's an artistic job, and it's like I, like a ballet. I mean, I wonder if. I, I don't know if a, a ballet dancer, you know, does a giant leap and is actually free in their mind, or they're thinking, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, Was it satisfying for you to write this book and look back? Very and- satisfying. And by the way, just to say, my, my I. Did enjoy doing it. Yeah. I, I, there, there were times it was just magic out there, and uh, magic like you've never it, felt it was, before in any other kind of performance. Well, performing was fun. It was all the other stuff that was, you know, age related. You know, as you get older, you don't want to go to a different town every night. Yeah. And and when I made my first film, I thought, oh, I stay home, and the movie goes to their town. <laughs> Am I crazy or is Charlie Rose a terrible interview? Terrible. He doesn't. Fucking, what are you answering for? Stern <laughs> Stern does the same thing all the time in an interview. Stern will do the same thing. He'll someone he'll ask a question, they'll start speaking, and then he'll try to oh, finish. Oh, so this is probably what you mean. Yeah, and then they're always like, no. <laughs> well, but anyway, I, I was glad that Steve Martin kind of explained that a little bit because when you're hearing the first part of his answer. It goes back to what you were talking about earlier, where it's like, oh, did he hate stand up? Yeah. But there is a point to be made there where it's like, no matter what you're doing, if you're doing a dumb podcast like this, if you're a stand up, whatever, uh, a job, you know, that you want and that you would like, it still becomes there are days where you're like, ah, fuck, I have to get back up on stage and do this. Even, you know, it's an hour out of your day or two hours, depending on how many shows you do. He's also one of the first people that, like, didn't enjoy the stage part. Usually people quit because of the travel, but he even threw in going on stage kind of sucked. Well, that's what I'm saying is like, uh, that's where I, I understand part of what he's saying, but the first half of his answer sounds like he purely hated it. Yeah. And then he does explain like, by the way, I did like it. Like There was a lot that I liked, but 
he, uh, you know, to, to the conversation we were having earlier, I think uh, there is something too, like he does not miss it. I don't get the sense that he misses, no. um, you know, going up on stage in front of a crowd. Now, what I always wonder about, because uh, another thing Steve talked about in his book um, was basically he started playing these arenas and he played like Nassau Coliseum, which was, you know, 40 something thousand seats. Um, he was talking, you know, t- 20,000 seat arenas became commonplace for him. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, you, I mentioned him taking the audience out onto the street. Even when he got into theaters with, with a couple thousand people, you can't do that shit. And it started to chip away. Okay. All right. I, I gotta, you know, refigure out how I do these things. Um, and then it got to the point where like in arenas that big, if someone yelled out, the I can respond to this guy, but like half the audience didn't hear him. Doesn't even know that someone yelled anything. Then it becomes weird. And the other thing he noticed is, you know, er earlier we were talking about that um, automatic laughter, you know, like the, the way that sitcoms have it. And he started to notice it's similar to we've talked about with Eddie Murphy, Mm -hmm. where like uh, people are just like, Oh, this is Steve Martin. This is going to be hilarious. So now he's getting laughs based on who he is rather than what he's doing. And that he got very frustrated with. Now, the thing I wonder about guys like that, because they always say like, oh, you know, they can't go out and work, work out their material. But like, what if Steve Martin just showed up at the comedy store at 2 a.m. on a Wednesday? You know what I mean? Like, I always wonder about that where it's like, you know, if you show up in a place like that where there's, you know, 15 people there. And they'll probably not know who he is. There'll be a lot of young people. Uh, Steve, that's, I mean, well, he's got that, um, no, what is it? No murders in the building or something like that. Like he spans every generation pretty much. He's stayed yeah. relevant even today. Yeah, that's true. So it'd be tough to not know who Steve Martin was, but, uh, you know, the thing that uh, like Damon, this is what Damon Wayans would do. We have mentioned this before too, where he would bury himself in the first five minutes and then try to work his way out of it. Like he would intentionally bomb so that the, the charm of like, Oh, we're seeing Damon Wayans is gone. You know what I mean? So like, I do wonder if they, if they could do stuff like that, but it sounds like Steve Martin kind of has the mentality of like, well, why would I do that? It's you know, so wild. Steve fucking Martin. Yeah, it's so wild to think that there was a charm of Damon Wayans at one point. <laughs> he was huge. I know. He he's, was, he's like, I mean, you know, at the at his peak, he was like one of the biggest. He was gigantic. Major Pain was one of my favorite movies growing up. Well, there you go. A real funny, feather in Damon Wayans' cap. Funny movie. Um, are we hearing about his father now? Uh, no. Um, oh, okay. What this we, is exposing the act. Oh, yeah, so this goes a little more into um, uh, what I was talking about. Done a performance, this is as good as I'll ever be. Um, you know, probably. When was it? Or do you uh, it would have been somewhere around 1975. Uh, I mean, it wasn't downhill from no, no, there. No. So, but looking back now, I go, that, that's, that's when I was really funny. And I think the reason I was really funny is the act was unknown to people. It had not yeah. been exposed like it became exposed like by 1978. The act you saw it, everybody's way ahead of it. Yeah. You, yeah. So that I think goes to it too, where it's like, you know, with dice, 
I think people yelling out the nursery rhymes worked because like Steve Martin was the first rock and roll comedian in the way that like, that's how he, he built his audience the same way, you know, like a, a rock and roll band would in a sense. But Dice was the first guy that really like live fit that character. You know what I mean? Like of a rock star. You look at Steve Martin. He doesn't look like a rock star comedian, whereas Andrew Dice Clay does. Right. And so for whatever reason, uh, you know, people yelling out, what's in the bowl, bitch? It works. With Steve Martin's act, it doesn't because the timing was so important to what he was doing. And the silences often were even more important. Like. The crowd he participation was, uh, with Dice is part of the allure to his shows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a, a frat house type of mentality almost. Um, but with you know Steve Martin, like part of the concern about his album was there were a lot of visual gags, and it's like, would this work? And it turns out it did because they both sold over two million copies. Um, but you know that was a legitimate worry at the time like is this going to play on an audio medium so now when you add people yelling shit out yelling because don't forget Steve Martin also had catchphrases you know excuse me and uh, wild and crazy guy were Mm -hmm. you know those were quoted before I I never knew they were Steve Martin's as a kid but I knew both quotes you know what I mean Right. like I had heard both of those and didn't even realize it was a Steve Martin thing when I was young um, so that's how popular those were. So you would have people yelling that shit out and Steve Martin's the type of act where that completely ruins the, the, the joke that he was doing, whatever his setup was, you know? Yep. Whereas dice would just say, shut the fuck up. You know? <laughs> you who, uh, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, now this is the part about his dad. Yeah. This was, I was oddly excited to talk about this just cause it's so bizarre. But like I said, his father uh, wanted to be an entertainer. They had kind of a frosty relationship when Steve was young. Um, and you know, his f- father would always tell him to get out of the business. And this is one of the more interesting stories about their dynamic. Um, what happened to the relationship with your father as you were becoming more and more successful? Well, we, it, it was it was complicated because I, I I began to notice something that he was not complimentary. This is tor- toward my career, not complimentary at all. And uh, I think it came from Daddy. I'm expecting him to cut him off and be like, so he, th- he thought you were a disappointment. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if that's what you're doing now. <laughs> it came full circle. Yeah, yeah. Actually, didn't like what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, you know. He wrote a review yeah. for the Real Estate Journal or something. Yeah, he gave me a bad review, once, which was, you know, and he had. A, he told me later he was ashamed about it. He right. he had written this bad review of my first appearance on Saturday Night Live, and he said his. I think he was kind of confessing that he had done the wrong thing, and he said his best friend came into him with the newspaper in his hand, and he put it on his my father's desk, and he went. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then he got to see the movies. Yes, the movies he was not particularly pleased with. He only started being pleased when I was started writing. Uh, like but like books. I say, you know, my material uh, in my stand-up act, it was a young person's act. It was generational. It was silly. You know, like the parents would go, what do you like that stuff for, you know? Uh, and the kids would be going, what are you talking about? It's fantastic, you know? And he was an older yeah. generation, so yeah, he true. couldn't really 
uh, appreciate. I mean, I find that so interesting. Just insane. Like, Steve Martin takes it pretty well, but like, it, not never mind a review in you know whatever real estate publication that was. I don't know how. Well, I don't know what the circulation was of that back then, but like, even if I found that you know my dad left a negative YouTube comment. <laughs> I don't think I would ever recognize him as alive again. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> but writing, writing a bad review about your appearance on SNL in a paper is funny. It's, it's hilarious, but also insane. It's very insane. <laughs> it's an insane thing to do as a father. Um, Great story. He, he mentioned uh, the movies. He wasn't a fan of either. I think he had, I think a pretty harsh review of the, uh, of the movies as well, I thought he said in the book. Maybe I'm conflating. Well, he just said just there. He goes, he hated the movies. <laughs> he, he wasn't a fan. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's a very um, sad, touching ending of his book, where he talks about you know his father. He mentioned it there a little bit, where his father did change towards the end of his life, and he told Steve he loved him for the first time, and essentially that he was jealous. You know, like Steve attributes it a lot to like oh, a different generation. He didn't really understand it. But I think any dime store therapist could tell you like, well, this guy wanted to be an entertainer. <laughs> His son was one of the most successful ever. <laughs> yeah. And he writes a bad review. You know, I don't know if you need a degree to figure out what the psychology well, was, was that's, going on. That's there. exactly the thing, too, is like um, if my kid turned out to be like that i would be very supportive and happy like i would i would not be like this yeah. kid fucking sucks he was very he was very resentful and uh even he said that his mother was much more supportive and loved that he was famous and everything but he said even she would say things like um like she knew he wrote his own material and she would say things like uh, you need new writers <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Just like, Jesus Christ. This guy, uh, if Steve Martin's parents can't be proud of him. <laughs> Jesus. You know, so I, I just thought that was uh, pretty wild. But to, you know, to the point we talked about earlier, that's what makes a comedian. You know, you can look at Steve Martin and say, like, boy, he's really got it together. He's a pretty clean cut guy. Also, by the way, I should have mentioned this one of the great geniuses of all time. Uh, much like Ted Danson in the sense that he understood if you're going to wear a wig, go pure white. No one will ever question. Did you know he wore a wig? I had no idea. There you go. Genius. <laughs> wow. So for those of you balding out there, consider the Steve Martin uh, route. Um, but yeah, I don't know, that, that derailed my train of thought, but <laughs> He's, he's, he's a wise man. Huh. Um, but oh yeah, but it, it does, you know, that's where comedians come from is having some kind of a uh, trauma or a weird upbringing. And, uh, he, he showed his stripes with his relationship with his parents. That's a tough one. Even <laughs> I go, he's like, my mom said one nice thing. So she's the supportive parent and she still stinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he was in the book. He writes about how, Supportive in it, oh, she was and everything. And it's like, even the way he wrote it, it kind of seemed like, I think she just liked that you were famous. <laughs> it sounded like she likes to go, she, she likes to go get her hair done and brag about how her kid's doing compared to everyone else's in there. That's all that is. Speaking of family, by the way, 
one weird thing about Steve Martin. He is going to be 78 this year. Jesus. He is a 10-year-old child. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is, that's a, I mean, the kid will never want for anything, obviously. No. You know, I think they're going to be set up for life, but that's pretty, to have a child at 67 or 68, whatever he was. Is this like his third wife? At least his second. I know he got divorced once. I'm not sure if it's his second or third wife. Yeah, imagine yeah. this late. It's got to be a third. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. Next, we have uh, Three Amigos. Oh, yeah. So I just uh, threw this in to talk a little bit about his relationship with uh, Martin Short as well. Uh, but this I did not realize. I assumed Three Amigos was a big success right out of the gate. But uh, he talks a little bit about it here. you guys believe the incredible... Uh, success of Three Amigos now, but it really, you know, it was a modest uh, success. Well, you know, what happened was we released Three Amigos and, you know, I had my heart into it. I don't know what you had, but <clears throat> I was a writer, <laughs> I, whatever, and I, kind of my idea. And, along, and then it comes out and it does fine. And I'd go see it in a theater and, I, you know, with the full audience, you wanted to see how it plays. You know, it played okay. Yeah. And then I get a call and it's Empire Magazine in England, which is a big uh, movie magazine. And they said, we want to put uh, you, Marty, and Chevy on the cover of our magazine. And I said, why? And they said, <laughs> well, it's the 25th anniversary of Three Amigos. And I said, so? And they explained that it was sort of this cult thing now or hit or, or you know, right. parents watch it with their kids, you know. I mean, I already had, always had a sense of it because I would, you know, do a lot of shows and be in a lot of airports and you can always kind of tell when people come up to you what they're going to talk about. And if it you was can. like, yeah, if it's, you know. Um, if they're dressed like an amigo. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, if, it, if, 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 it, if the guy is 28 and looks like he's been like kind of drugged for about eight years, they're going to talk about Clifford. And if they, but, it, but usually a 40-year-old guy would come up and he'd talk about three amigos. Um, you know, I know Craig thinks he's a worthless hack, but I'm a I'm a Martin Short. Fan. I never said that. I don't like I don't like this new marriage. Well, not new, but you know what well, I mean. They said that when uh, I'm, they, I think they've told this story on every talk show they've been on, but I just thought it was a good line that the first time Martin Short met Steve Martin, uh, I believe it was for Three Amigos, and he went over to his house, and uh, Steve Martin was kind of giving him the tour, and he's looking around, and Martin Short goes, "My God." I had no idea how successful you, you were because I've seen your work. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious thing to say to someone the day you meet them. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so I, you know, there's uh, obviously Steve Martin had a, a ton of different films. Like we said, the jerk probably is best work. A lot of people would like three amigos. I always think of planes, trains and automobiles. I don't know why. That's my favorite Steve Martin movie. Yeah, um, probably more for I think it's a great John Candy performance, honestly. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely. But he plays a. They could have. I feel like those two could have been. Uh, you know, kind of the way Farley and Spade was, seemed like they were going to be. Gonna, like, I was going to say a better off Farley and Spade. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they could have been a good yeah. uh, uh, do comedy duo. But it was the, was that the only movie they were in together? I think so. And until you know recently. Oh, John Candy. Yeah, definitely. Recently. <laughs> <laughs> I in my head as I started speaking, I was thinking of Martin Short again and how much I just don't want them to be together. Ladies and gentlemen, John Candy. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, him and Carol Baskin's husband just <laughs> walking out. 
Uh, yeah, but like uh, like Craig alluded to uh, recently, since uh, or I think even maybe before, no mur- is it no murderers in the building? Is that the name of the show? Uh, I always fuck it up. Um, but I, they you know have done shit on Netflix together, and uh, yeah, they are the new uh, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> They're a comedy team uh, for whatever reason. But it is kind of like like there's something nice that I like about old guys like that giving each other shit. Like I could watch that all day. Like even though sometimes it's schmaltzy or corny, whatever. Like I enjoy listening to just Martin Short and Steve Martin. Martin uh, go Mar- back. And forth. Martin and Martin was just not funny. It was terrible. Um, that's, that's, you know, I never watched it. Oh, that's probably. Watch it and then we'll revisit this. But uh, <laughs> what you're thinking of is only murderers in the building. Only murderers in the building. I had the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> no murder. <laughs> I was watching a completely different show, I guess. Uh, all right. What's next? That's our last clip. And it's our famous shoehorning of Norm. Yes. Well, you thought we couldn't do it. We weren't able to do it the last couple of weeks. Uh, so you thought we were down, but no, no, no Norm's back with, uh, this is just an interaction that he had via the internet. He's uh, talking to Letterman here. Get this just earlier. This happened right before we came on the, uh, on the show. I, I walked out here. Yeah. Uh, I'm in some kind of Twitter feud with Steve Martin. I know that I know that Steve <laughs> also actively Twitters. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what happened. Dig this. You know how to tweet? No. You don't know how to tweet? No. Where have you been? So, so, uh, so I, he writes a tweet. I misunderstand it. I reply. Let's hear what he says. What he said? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is what he said. <laughs> I'm not really that great at it. But <laughs> he said, uh, he said, has anybody seen my hat? Mm. Now, um, I'm looked every for for it. I can't find my hat. Right. So I say, was it a brown fedora with a red hat band? But what I didn't know is he sent a twit pic. <laughs> Stop right there. Let me just say, if this is an example of Twitter communication, <laughs> it's invaluable. <laughs> it's, What do you think I should answer him? This is the last thing he said to me. He goes, uh, this just came in nine seconds ago. He goes, still mulling over this tweet from Norm to me. It's so enigmatic. Is it a put down? <laughs> I, I don't, I, honestly, I, I, I mean, he lost a hat, right? Yeah. And then you responded, is it with a red hat band? Yeah. I, I don't, none of this makes any sense. <laughs> It's a generational thing. Oh, that's but, uh, <laughs> I guess so. I just enjoy that clip because it's like Norm's not understanding Twitter. <laughs> he's giving Letterman shit for not understanding it. Uh, but yeah, that, I mean, I would say Norm's probably another guy that definitely got some sort of influence. A completely different comedian. Yeah. But you can tell there's a, a little Steve Martin in him. For sure. Um, but yeah, you know, and uh, I'll admit, I can't say I was, a, I necessarily understood, uh, all of Steve Martin's, con- like, for example, uh, King Tut, I don't get, 
you could, I mean, maybe it'll tell me it's some brilliant hidden genius song that I just don't understand. But like, I don't get why it was funny or anything. So there were things where it's like, I don't, I just don't get it. Like, is it that he's that much smarter than me or is that it's just not that funny, but he truly is a genius. And I uh, recommend, you're not going to hear me recommend a lot of books. Um, <laughs> but I would recommend uh, uh, the three I would recommend would be a memoir by Norm Macdonald, uh, the coloring book by Colin Quinn and um, Steve Martin's book born standing up. I would uh, start with all th- three of those if you're a comedy fan, but um, I, it's also like, it's nice to hear their voice too. It makes it much easier to, it's essentially you're just listening to a podcast about their life, but. Oh, he reads it himself. He does. Yeah. Ooh, interesting. Um, so check that out. Steve Martin, like I said, you know, um, my knowledge of him was probably not that different than most people of my generation where it's like, yeah, I knew he was a very successful standup. And then I just knew him as, you know, being a lot of, in a lot of these cornball movies in like the early 2000s and being a guy who, you know, pops on SNL once in a while. Like, that's really how I knew. Oh, I was aware of his success, um, but didn't really have any interest in it. And then, like I said, after reading the book and listening to a lot of the interviews that he did, um, I have a lot more interest and uh, respect for him than I did previously. So um, check it out. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, if you have anything uh, to add, as always, let us know. Message me on Patreon uh, or Twitter, wherever you can get a hold of me. And you can find all those links at blindmike.net. Um, that's where you can find the free links to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and the like. Uh, you can find the blind. You can find the uh, blind mic project there. I'm echoing, so it's probably the perfect time to wrap this up. You're not on uh, my end, so that's good. So check out blindmic.net, and also for uh, Craig, go to verygoodshow.org. Yeah, and please. they have all the all the same stuff. You can find the links to the, his podcast and Patreon as well if you go to uh, verygoodshow.org. So support the boys if you'd be so kind. I love it. Thank you. Um, anything I forgot before we get out of here? Uh, no, not that I can think of. All right, guys. We will talk to you next time. Oh, uh, I will just uh, throw this out there. I don't know the order. Um, as always, throw suggestions for episodes. I think the next couple, I was thinking maybe Jackass. Perfect. Um, one I want to do soon is uh, Charlie Sheen, the whole Tiger Blood thing when he quit Two and a Half Men. Oh, nice. <laughs> I think that's a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Um, Mort Saul doing some of the older guys I want to do. And then, um, we've got a good bunch of good episodes for bonus ideas as well. So get on the Patreon, uh, blindmike.net. We'll talk to you guys next time on why are you laughing? <laughs>